Welcome to I Develop Her Live, episode 42. This is your almost weekly show for iOS and OS X indie developers, where we look at business, we look at tech stuff, and we look at any old rubbish we choose to talk about when we're sat in front of a microphone. With me on the show today, and this time I'm actually going to turn the dial up so you can hear him, Mr. John Fox. Hello, world. Hello, Scotty. Hello, unidentified mystery guest. Well, there we are. I am sat in the same room. This is such an honour, John, as the unidentified mystery guest who we've only introduced once before, but I forgot to turn the mixing desk up. Please, let me hear that big roar for Mr. Simon Wolf. <laughs> you, you finished him off now. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello, Scotty. Hello, John, if you're still alive. Well, here we are now. It's, um, uh, we... Uh, yeah, it, it's Simon quite rightly pointed out when I didn't have him on air because uh, I forgot to turn the dial up that you know wolves do not make that sound, but we have never been ones for accuracy on this show, and so therefore that doesn't worry us in the slightest. Uh, John, I understand that somebody tried to sue your ass this week. Uh, yes, yes, I was going to to tell this story, and, and partly because it's amusing, partly because it may have some little nuggets of wisdom that people may be able to to apply in their own indie lives. So, shall I begin? It will take oh, wait, a wait, wait a minute. Let's make sure everybody's sitting comfortably. And you can begin. Okay. So, uh, back in 2006, when uh, in, the, in the spring of 2006, I had shipped Memory Miner in January of that year. And I was working with a, a woman graphic designer who was a recent mommy. And uh, that's how I actually met her. And she's a great, well, wonderful you, graphic designer. She had designer. your child. No, uh, no. Um, <laughs> No, no, she was in the same yoga, prenatal yoga classes as my mom, as my mom. As your my mum was in prenatal yoga classes in 2006. Shut up, Shut up. my wife. <laughs> Sorry, anyway. John, would you like to start the story again? <laughs> yes, in fact, it, but I would like everybody to just, to, I would like Simon to turn off your microphone so I don't have to be interrupted. He won't let me know, it's all that caffeine coursing through, so he's going to be like this all through the show, I'm afraid. All right. So anyway, so she looked after all the, the, the graphic design of MemoryMeyer.com. She did a great job. And it, it so happens that she was uh, photographed in a series of, of uh, photographs of, of pregnant women for in a project that was a pretty interesting photographic project. And she says, well, you know, the photographer is interested in, in kind of revising the project and kind of doing another uh, kind of exhibit for it. And doing an online version of it, and maybe we could use Memory Miner for that because it involves people in, in interesting places and backstories and all that kind of stuff. And I said, great, wonderful. So she said about work on this and involved in, in, in doing a bunch of digital projects for it, involving everything from a Memory Miner library to um, uh, making some, some custom videos using the, these photographs and some, some newly composed music that was using sound, interesting sounds from the places where the original photographs had been taken, etc. It, it was an involved project and that involved lots of different moving pieces. But as I said, kind of memory miners involvement was, of it was that it was used to, to, to create this memory miner story viewer, which reprised all these elements and that was hosted on memoryminer.com. And then there was a whole kind of landing page talking about the entire project, the biographies of the people involved, the artists, the composers, the people who were, were in the photos. And, and it contained links to this online you know, presentation of it and, and was used as one of the examples of, of what people were doing uh, with Memory Miner. And I, th I thought it was an interesting project. It was a tremendous amount of work. And 
it, 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 but the, the challenge with it was as, as, as the type of demo piece is because it was, was pregnant women and they were partially nude, it had to be kind of behind a, a wall saying, hey, you know, so that people know what they're looking at. It was, you know, um, so it was a little bit not something that I could put easily on the front page saying, hey, look at this, this thing. It was one of several projects and it was kind of, you know, one that was a little bit on the, the fringes in some ways. So anyway, uh, after it was done, I kind of forgot about it many, many years ago. And, and in fact, it became pretty much invisible from the site back in 2009 when I'd, I'd redone the site for, for Memory Miner 2 so that you couldn't really navigate to there in any way from, from landing on any of the web pages. But the pages themselves were, were still up there on the site because there were links out there on the Internet that pointed to it. So back in November of, of 2011, I got this you know kind of snarly email from, from the photographer in question saying, you know, I have two things, to whom it may concern, <laughs> is how it was addressed. I have two things that I have to address with you. One is that, you know, th these photographs have to come down immediately. And unbeknownst to me, you've been using my photographs to advertise your product, and I want back money for it. And <laughs> I, was, I was rather taken aback. So I, I, I sat down, thought about it for, for a while, and, and crafted what I thought was a, a lovely letter, which I believed should have taken care of it in its entirety, because I said, you know, hello, person X. How lovely to hear from you. <laughs> um, of course, I will take these down. In fact, they haven't been visible. You would have to have done a, a very specific Google search to get to them, but you know, gone, no harm, no foul. As you might recall, the woman who looked after the, the graphic design is, is one of the women who was in these series. And, and you know, uh, the, the website had completely redone. So they weren't visible, but no harm, no foul. But you know, here you are saying that unbeknownst to you. And I said, really? At which point I copied and pasted email that, that the photographer had sent around to her mailing list saying, you know, check out this project I'm doing and you can see the online version of it here. Do have a look. And, you know, blinks on her own site that had pointed back to it. So I said, are you really going to stand by your assertion that unbeknownst to you, <laughs> your photographs were used to advertise my product? You know, really? I don't think so. And, and as you might recall, this was a, a joint effort, involved lots of work on all parties, and it was all done to everybody's mutual benefits, and no point was money ever discussed. And so, no, there's no money forthcoming. I consider this issue closed. Have a nice day. So I thought that was the end of it. And then back in the end of December, I received uh, a letter uh, by post um, that's mail for you and me, um, which from a lawyer saying that, you know, we think a reasonable amount for, for, for back pay, which you neglected to negotiate, is, is $175,000. And uh, you have Reasonable. Until, that's very reasonable. Yeah. I think I, I <laughs> yeah. totally agree, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you have until January 30th to respond. Otherwise, we're going to you know, initiate a federal copyright violation suit which, you know, for which you'll, you'll, you're liable for, for damages and, and legal fees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, that, that kind of is a world of suck. And uh, as I said, kind of because this was a joint effort, it was so much effort. It's like, where is this coming from? So finally, you know, I, I, I went and saw a lawyer. And I, I'm fortunate that I do know a very good lawyer who absolutely specializes in intellectual properties. She's excellent at this stuff. And I, I went and met with her and, and told her the story and brought her all the materials. And it, she, she was very, very, very helpful. She crafted several emails back and forth to, to the other lawyer, kind of pointing out all the fallacies. Um, of which there were several, one of which uh, – and so and, you know, I, I learned some things about copyright law that I had not known. And one of which was that if you don't actually file a copyright on something, 
you can still apply for one at any one time, but if you don't have a copyright in place at a time of, of, a, of an alleged infraction, you can't then sue for damages. Um, and in fact, if you do go and, and bring somebody to court and you lose, then the party who you're suing is, is, can ask for, for legal fees if, if they prevail. And then any damages that might be awarded would then be based on you know whatever the judge successfully believes is 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 the portion that's due to you. In other words, if you use somebody's photograph in an ad, then they have to decide, okay, well, what portion? What's the value of the of the photograph in terms of of, of that ad, that single ad, or that single usage of of the copyrighted work contributing to the overall profitability of of, of the product in question? Um, so anyway, but but what was interesting about it is that. When the when I first got the the original email back in November, the very first thing I did, of course, was scour through all my my correspondence, trying to get you know all the information. All and and I was very lucky because uh, I, I keep all my memory miner mail in in, in in an IMAP mailbox, so it can be very painful because it's very large, but it's all on my machine. I can search through everything and get things very very quickly. So I had all the relevant bits and pieces I needed. The other thing I did is, of course, you know, visit the web page and and. and her site and some other sites that had links to it, and I used the the archive feature in Safari so I could actually download a, a copy of of the HTML and loaded re- and related resources. I took screen grabs. I made screen movies of me navigating to that page. I also went to the Wayback Machine. If people aren't familiar with that. There's a thing called the Internet Archive, which maintains an archive of web pages going back, you know, ten. You know, basically to the, the earliest days of the web, and you could find links there. So I had all this stuff in case you know they, they tried anything funny, which in the in the end they they did, because after we sent you know kind of the third letter saying we still don't understand what part of here's a description on your web page in your emails in in your press releases describing in great detail the the, the usage of the photographs in memory miner on memoryminer.com do you not understand constitutes you know a clear indication of that this was a collaborative project and that we all had permission for using it what part of that don't you understand and when we finally sent screen grabs with with all the links in there, they decided, oh, wow, they were able to get this stuff off of off the photographer's website. Maybe we should just like kill the website and turn off the, the DNS records so people can't get to it anymore. But in the end, they, they kind of finally saw the light after a, a final conversation where they tried to probe a little bit, digger, a little bit deeper, and, and it seems that they were under the impression that because Memory Miner had won a Best of Show award in 2006, that we had been acquired by Apple and that we're just rolling in money so that they could you know, bring a, a nuisance lawsuit that we would then just you know pay money to to make them go away. But in this case, I was unwilling to do that. So um, that's my little story. My my only little takeaway, as I said, for it, which may be a good segue into today's real topic, is that you know we all want to spend all our time thinking about engineering and 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 marketing and business development. But then there are these other kind of operational things that involve you know everything from taxes to, to legal activities, trademarks, you know, business licenses, all that kind of stuff. And I enjoin everybody to, to, you know, make sure you keep records of things in email because it can be very, very useful for you. And if it involves any type of, of question about he said, she said, in terms of, of web pages, these type of techniques, screen grabs, screen movies, the, the Wayback Machine, they are all your good friends. And now I'll be quiet. Me and Simon are just staring at each other with horrified looks on our faces. I mean, I think the point there is if, okay, you understood. Uh, firstly, you keep all your email. That's maybe the first tip and best piece of advice is never delete email to do this anything to do with business. But equally, you understood that there were places to go and find 
this this way back. I mean, uh, you know, for for people who didn't do that, I mean, that could have just eaten up a long, long time and a lot of court time and lawyer time and whatever else. They're just pointless, and, and it's all about money grabbing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was it was it was kind of interesting. Somebody asked on the on the chat room, "Did you get your legal fees back?" And, and the answer is no, because we didn't go to trial, and, and you can't really kind of force them to do it. But I was fortunate in that. Um, you know, if you do have to go see a lawyer, in the same way if you if you go to see an accountant or anything, the value you know that you want to have them use the least amount of their expensive time because if you have everything very clearly laid out and and ready to be put into a you know into a correspondence and, and have backup materials, then that's not time that they have to spend kind of interviewing you and trying to to put together the narrative. Um, so as I said, I kind of this is something that that. I feel pretty pretty uh, comfortable in dealing with and uh, understanding all the different ways that, that things go out on the web and 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 how Google works and and, and whatnot. I mean, because in the end, what 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 pushed this to the fore, what what caused the photographer to get in touch with me, is that another of the of the models had sent an email to her saying, "Hey, you know, I'm a teacher now, and I just googled my name and I found these pictures of me, and I would I would like you to remove them." And um, I did, and and they had, you know, uh, just because something is in a Google search, it still remains in their cache for some period of time, and it's basically the time for them to to, to kind of update their cache, which can be days. Um, but there are specific uh, webmaster tools that you can go to and say, please delete this from the cache immediately, which you can have done. So it, it, it's 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 surprising to me the number of people who haven't who are are kind of professional content creators who really don't understand how, how the web works and that essentially once something goes up on a web page, you know, it's gone. I mean, you, your control over it is gone. It, it, it can be copied and referenced and, and cached in, in, in search engines. Google isn't the only one, of course, but by... I, th- I think this is, um, this is something, I mean, this is totally off topic as a developer show, but I mean, you know, we're human beings and we can talk human being stuff, but, you know, the kids of today who are posting all sorts of, you know, stuff about themselves on Facebook... You know, and then think, oh, well, you know, I closed my Facebook account later on. You know, this stuff's going to be around for years about them. All those sort of what they thought were wonderfully witty things they put photos up on Facebook of themselves doing as a 16-year-old. It can be very impressive to their employer as a 30-year-old. Yeah. It's a good thing that you're not applying to a job now because these pictures of you with a mohawk, you know. Hey, I'm proud of that mohawk, John. I think it's a fantastic mohawk. So, well, it, it still comes back to what Scott McNeely, who was the, you know the CEO of Sun, said early on in the internet: it's "Like there is no privacy on the internet. Get over it." You see, and of course, because I do proper parenting, my, my my daughter spent this weekend writing and recording videos of herself singing a, um, a Doctor Who song that she'd written and put on YouTube. See, so I just think that will get her a job in the future. That's such creativity that she's obviously going to get from her parents. Absolutely. All right. Well, there's my little my my little tale. Well, I'm glad John, that, that you didn't have to pay 175 thousand pounds because that means I'd have to increase what I pay you to do this show. I have to triple my weight, my, my wages. I'm happy to triple them. That's that's fine. Well, he's been sat very quietly in the corner, um, smiling all this time because he's such a happy man. It's Mr. Simon Wolf. He's our special guest today. And Simon, what are we going to be talking about? Um, we're going to be talking about um, the concept of going paperless and really getting paperwork um, under control, um, which is a big problem I have. Before I, I start with that, though, I've, I've literally just had a spam tweet come in, uh, which tells me that going paperless at home can save 50 million trees a year. Now, I didn't know I was using that much paper. 
so I don't know if this is just me or if this is everybody, but according to this very pretty young lady, um, it's something that's worth doing. Right, so there we are. Pretty young lady says, you can save 50 million trees a year. Now, if we just get every listener of this show to save 50 million trees a year, I mean, that's got to be more than the Amazon I rainforest. Think, I, exactly. It's, it's, I think you misinterpreted I think it's more that some pretty lady at you on, t- on Twitter saying, got wood. <laughs> no, you've just used my joke there. Never mind. We'll, you only had one joke, yeah, John, and it's we'll, just gone. Sorry. Gone. We'll, let you, we'll let you have that one. Um, okay, so... Why did I decide to do this, first of all? Um, I'm one of those people who isn't terribly organised, and I tend to have paper all over my desk, and I get the post in, and I sort it out into stuff that needs doing and stuff that doesn't, and the stuff that needs doing goes into one pile, and that pile grows, and grows and grows and grows, until you reach the point where actually you can't find anything in the pile that needs doing, so nothing gets done. Uh, And I reached the point where I thought that I had to sort this out. Um, It was also coupled with the fact that I've started using, uh, for my business, an online accounting system called Xero. And as part of Xero, one of the things that's really handy to do is you can take PDFs of invoices or any other paperwork, and you can attach them to transactions, which is really nice because it means then that everything is filed in the accounts and you don't have to keep all your paperwork separately. Uh, But obviously, there's a step there of getting uh, information from email or or paper invoices uh, into Xero. Uh, I was also finding um, um, that I was quite often missing deadlines. I would have been sent a letter from my accountant saying, uh, can you file this bit of information or can you give us these documents by such and such a date? And I would invariably miss it uh, because their letter had been, or their email even sometimes, had been just lost in my huge mass of, of growing papers. And the final straw was a couple of weeks ago when Scotty came down to uh, to see Otter Software Towers uh, and looked at my desk and <laughs> said that he couldn't actually believe that somebody was more disorganised and messier than he was. Uh, and that's, that's a true story, folks. It is, and that's a sort of insult, really, that, that at that point that's a life changer. Uh, if you're if you're worse than Scotty at something, you need to do something dramatically and quickly. <laughs> I just like to be such an inspiration in people's lives. So yes. Um, so at that point, I decided that I, I really need to do something about this and, and to get things under control. I'd really struggled to get my company's accounts together this year, uh, and as a result of the way that I'd done it, it cost me a huge amount of money in accountants' fees because they were trawling through files of paper and Excel spreadsheets and all sorts of different things. Uh, and it was terribly expensive and, and not the sort of thing I really want to have to face again. So I started to look into this uh, and I came across some good tips, um, which are, are great as theory, um, not always as easy to turn into practice. But the crux of the, the tips that I came across were that you should only really keep papers that need to be kept. Um, same thing like a legal document, uh, anything where you need the original of it, hang on to that. Um, you can scan it in, um, but keep some originals and have a proper filing system for those. Uh, Everything else, scan it in as quickly as you can or as soon as you can. So when you get the post in each day, go through it, take stuff that you want to keep uh, and scan it immediately. uh, And then you can shred it and you've got got rid of the paper, but you've still got the information or or the documents that you need. There was also... Okay, so do you, do you use any particular scanning software? What do you use to I don't, I'm going to come on to that in a minute. Oh, I just right, want to go ruining, through. You're ruining, your you're ruining my, my, oh, my flow you, you ruined his joke, John. I'm ruining his flow. I'm, We're I'm, just I'm going this home in a minute. Um, it was also a point, don't try and scan all your historic stuff at once. Start off by just doing the new stuff that comes in because you'll then have plenty of time when you've got a routine of going back and starting to scan in old information, old documents. Um... Stop printing things 
uh, was something else, which is something actually I tend to do a lot. If I come across an interesting blog post, I'll quite often print it out so that I can go and read it on the sofa uh, or read it in bed or take it with me. Are you kidding? What? Are you kidding? You would actually print stuff out? I I print stuff out. I've been really bad about printing stuff out. What's wrong with Instapaper? Well, nothing now that I'm using it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Oh, so 21st century. Um, I'm just going to get a load of grief during this, aren't I? And no, this, you thought this was a, a, a podcast. This is just an abuse session. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the final sort of big tip uh, was stop scribbling notes on bits of paper. Uh, I have a desk that sort of covered or was covered in post-it notes and scraps of paper with bits and pieces scribbled on it. Mm. Um, and all those things are designed. That's the theory of, of cutting it down, making things a bit more manageable. Um, Now, obviously, as Scotty jumped in and said, one of the the key things to that is getting hold of a scanner um, and using it. So the first tip I've got for that is don't use a flatbed scanner. I had a flatbed scanner. They're horribly slow. They're a real pain to use. You're not going to sit there and start sort of scanning multi-page documents on both sides um, because it's just very tedious. Um, So if you've got one of those, really forget about trying to use it for for this sort of thing. Um, They're great for photos or or one-off scanning jobs, but not really ideal for for going paperless. Um, And then back in early December, um, Fraser Spears, um, who's probably best known to people for his educational slant to to stuff he does with Apple and for rolling out iPads to schools, um, tweeted that he was looking for um, a a good scanner for documents, um, and he bought himself a Canon P150, um, and he bought it over a ScanSnap, which seems to be a very popular choice um, because it had Twain drivers. Now, that means if you've got a Twain driver, it means that you can start to use it with things like image capture on the Mac. If a scanner hasn't got Twain drivers, you're kind of tied in with whatever software the manufacturer supplies you with. Um, there are third-party applications that will emulate it, and sometimes you can get third-party Twain drivers for a scanner. But it's just one of those things. It's, it's a little extra hurdle. Um, so he deliberately went for a Canon over what is generally seen to be sort of the more standard, uh, more widely used um, scanners for going paperless. Um, now, I had a look at this. Um, and the first thing that I discovered is that the P150's just been replaced. So if you're if you're looking for a scanner, it's now the Canon P215 is the upgraded model. Um, but I decided I didn't really want a, a little portable scanner. Um, I don't tend to to travel around a lot, so I was quite happy having a desktop um, scanner with a larger paper um, feed system, so I could just dump a whole load of papers in and, and just let it get on with it. Um, the the full desktop based scanners are also slightly faster um, although to be honest it doesn't become that much of an issue Um, so I ended up I bought a Canon DR2010M who says we don't do technical stuff on here was that a Canon what a Canon DR hyphen 2010M this is almost like Canon Droom and Something to watch out for, and I think that um, Fuji ScanSnap do it as well, is if a scanner model number has got an M at the end, it usually means that it's it's designed for Mac in that it will come with more Mac-friendly software. Um, generally, sort of scanners, they'll come with a load of software and, 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 and um, utilities for Windows machines, but the, the M models are generally targeted towards Mac users. So do you want to just confirm that again? Because that showing is not available. <sighs> Uh, the DR two zero one zero M. That's interesting. Canon. Mm-hmm. Can't find it. Okay, we'll, we'll, we we'll, we'll, we'll look at that check, later. and we can put that in the show we'll notes. Check some proper links. 
Um, and that scanner comes with with, with uh, a Canon application called Capture on Touch. Um, and the idea of Capture on Touch is that you can basically configure um, different scanning styles and you can assign them to, to the three hardware buttons on the front of the scanner and you can then set up other profiles. So you can, for example, have a scanning job that will do a duplex full color scan. Um, of a certain resolution, or you can set up a job that will scan in a picture and send it to iPhoto or save it to a particular folder. Um, so it's, it's just quite nice. It gives you a little bit of workflow from their, their standard software, um, and the application's not too bad. It's not as, as ugly and hideous as some uh, bits of scanner software that I've seen in the past. Can you get it to automatically print upon receipt of the digital image on your computer? <laughs> I will ignore that. Thank you. So that you can file it. Oh, dear. Um, so first recommendation is get a good scanner. Get a proper desktop scanner with a sheet feeder, um, and it makes your job really simple. I scanned in, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I had a, an eight-sided four-sheet insurance renewal reminder document. Popped it in the scanner, press a button, and it was literally about three or four seconds. I had this thing scanned in, and it had then saved it out to Evernote. I added a tag with the date that I needed to to actually deal with it, and that's all filed away. I can then shred the original papers, and I don't have to worry about them. That's the sort of thing you're aiming to do. Um, in terms of making notes, um, which is obviously a, a big thing when you're particularly developing stuff, it's it's very quick and, and easy, and, and most people do it. If you've, say, got uh, an image that your graphics designer sent you, you'll scribble out the dimensions of it so that when you're creating uh, the bit of the user interface it's going to go into, you know what size you've, you've got to size it to. Um, and any other bits of information, you have a phone call with somebody and you're just going to scribble notes down on bits of paper. Um, you need to get out of that habit um, because you just end up with loads and loads of bits of paper um, and paper all over the place. And, and it's either all stuck to your monitor um, or you just forget it. Uh, so I decided that because I've got an iPad, I would use that for a lot more of my note, pay note taking. Um, there are various applications you can get. Um, I'm kind of using two at the moment, um, really for, for different purposes. The first one I'm using is NoteShelf, um, which is really nice. Uh, you can set up effectively virtual notebooks for different projects, um, and you have multiple pages, all the, all the usual sorts of things. Um, but because it has this notebook concept, generally when you launch it, you then have to go into a notebook. Or if you launch it and you're already in a notebook, it's generally the wrong one. So I'm also using Penultimate, which is much more uh, a straight note-taking application. You can have multiple pages, but you launch it, and there's one, generally one notebook, and, and I will use that for my scribbled notes. So, so why? Okay, sorry. So, these ones allow you. You say you're scribbling. You can write. So yeah, yeah. So you, so you will just, you know, with your finger, you'll write a note. So we're talking an iPad. We're talking on an iPad. Yeah. Um, and I actually went and, and also got a, a Wacom Bamboo stylus for the iPad. Just because it gives you, you know, it's a bit more natural. If you're scribbling something down, it's it's a bit easier to use a, a, a pen equivalent than just your finger. Um, and you can generally fit more writing on a page. So start using or start trying to use your iPad for this sort of stuff. Um, it also means that because you don't want it all generally building up, you'll occasionally sit down and go through it and delete pages that you don't need or scribble things out. Um, and it's just quite a nice habit to get through. And it also means you've got everything in one place. And you can then do things like, um, for most note-taking applications anyway, you can export, say, a PDF of the notebook or particular pages um, or export it as an image. And then you can, say, import that into something like um, Evernote or any of the other 
sort of general repository systems. So, so you treat basically you treat this note taking app is like the scraps of paper on the desk. Yeah. And when you decide that one of those scraps of paper you want to keep, you then put it into Evernote. Yes. Okay, because I was going to say, you know, now you're using two note-taking apps with Evernote and Word, but actually Evernote is your stuff you want to keep. Yeah. And these are the old scrap pieces of paper. Yes, Evernote's the, the central repository I'm using to collate all the information that I want to keep and be able to find again afterwards. Um, otherwise, um, the, the applications on the iPads are literally just for scribbling or sketching or doodling and all the stuff I would have done on a Post-it note or a scrap of paper before. Um, it's a difficult habit to break. Um, and so something that I would possibly suggest is that you have one paper notebook. Don't have scraps of paper. Don't have a, a block of notes. Don't have post-it notes. Have a, a physical notebook, preferably the sort where it's, I don't know, maybe spiral bound and you can tear individual pages out if you want to. But if you have one notebook and you're putting all your notes in that, that's at least keeping them in one place as well. So you're limiting what uh, places you're going back to to look for information. You're not searching around for scraps of paper. You're not covering your desk with bits of paper. You've got just one physical uh, entity to go and look in. Um, something that also came up that was quite interesting was business cards. Um, and I went through this, and when I actually sort of was clearing up my desk and clearing out my drawers, I found a, a load of business cards um, from all sorts of people, from my old job, uh, Mac developers I know, um, you know, there was a, a thing a, a year or two ago, an awful lot of people went out and got Moo cards printed for things like applications they were developing, a sort of a, almost like a bit of publicity for it. Um, if someone tries to give you a business card, try not to accept it and simply try to stop giving them out. It's much better, I think, from a business contact point of view to ask somebody to email you or to connect with you over something like Twitter for two reasons. One, it means that you're not collecting just these little bits of card. Um, and secondly, it means if you say to somebody, can you send me an email with all your contact details, they've kind of made that first contact and they know that you've then got it and you're likely to do something with it. With a business card, you know, you could just throw it in the bin or it can sit in your wallet for years and you, you don't find it or it goes in the desk drawer. Yeah, especially your wallet, how often that comes out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so try and avoid going away from, from business cards, um, try and get people's Twitter names. And if you can, um, make a, a, you know, send them a tweet immediately and say, you know, just to remind you that you need to send me your contact details. Just try and do something electronically. Um, now, I'm also going to ask the chat room at this point whether they've got any suggestions for applications for um, iOS, for iPhones in particular, for swapping contact details, because this is something I've always found a bit poor um, on the iPhone, that there's no easy way to send vCards between devices. And I know there are a whole load of sort of third-party applications that do it, but it's almost at the point now where there are so many, it's very difficult to sit down and go through them and work out what are the good ones, which are compatible with what, and, and ways to do it. So while well, well, the chat room are getting a chance to, to think about that, and obviously they're on a slight delay from our real time in the studio, um, uh, there was a... Um, question saying, do you use OCR or do you just literally take images or do you rely on the OCR that's in Evernote? I generally rely on the OCR in Evernote. Um, I upgraded to Evernote Premium, which also um, does OCR on uh, PDFs as well as on um, JPEG images. So I'll tend to rely on that. I don't use sort of separate OCR that came with the scanner or anything like that. I will let Evernote do it. So the OCR in Evernote is for basically... As opposed to creating a text document you can then amend, it's for basically um, creating search indexes. Yes, yeah. It allows you to then search the contents of these documents. So you couldn't then get that out and use it in Word or something because it's not doing that type of OCR? Um, 
Um, don't think so. I've never tried it, to be honest. Because um, then, of course, you might want to print it. Yes. <laughs> the next thing I will move on to while you're still going on about that is this whole thing of stopping printing. Uh, were, you, were you an obsessive compulsive printer? I wasn't obsessive compulsive, but I, I've always an OCP, been. As we call I've always been here. one of those people who <laughs> likes books and I like reading things on paper. Um, about, I guess it was about a year ago, it might have been slightly less, I bought a Kindle. Um, and I got it originally because I wanted to stop buying big, thick, heavy reference books. And I thought, I'll get them all digitally, electronically. They're searchable. They don't take up shelf space. Uh, we're not chopping down trees for them. And I can carry them around on a very small device that I can easily reference. Um, and at the time, I didn't think I would ever stop reading sort of novels and, and other paper-based books. But actually, I'm now... Uh, loathe almost to buy paper-based books, and I'll tend to buy everything on the Kindle. So um, anything that you would have printed out, um, there are really three things I'll do with it. I'll either now send it to Instapaper, which is something I sort of played with a, a while ago, but it, it reached the point where I was putting so much stuff into it and never then sort of reviewing or reading any of it. It just became this huge repository of, of stuff. Um, I trimmed all that down, and I'm starting to use that in a, a sort of a more methodical manner. Um, I'm creating documents that I will send to my Kindle. Um, if Kindles will allow you to basically email files, which will then show up on your Kindle, which is great for, for reading stuff. Um, or again, put stuff in Evernote. Um, and it's a bit of a, a sort of a jar and a, a bit of a change from sort of reading stuff on paper. But um, between sort of the Kindle and the iPad, generally I'm, I'm getting sort of more used to it and it's becoming more of a, a habit and, and more of a natural way of doing things and it's certainly cutting down on the amount of stuff I'm printing out. Um, but the other thing I would recommend, because I was tending to, when I wanted to update my, my accounting software or update other things, I'd say go to my bank's website and I would print out a couple of sheets of, of the latest sort of statements uh, or latest transactions so I could then tick them off and it was easier to sort of compare paper to something on screen. Um, and I've now got out of that habit, and I, I am a huge advocate of having a second monitor um, or a second screen available, um, or even doing it on your iPad so that you've got uh, the ability to compare content from one screen to another. Now, if you like Scott, you've got a huge 30-inch monitor, and it's less of a problem. Um, but if you're working, say, on a laptop, thinking about using something like your iPad to access a website on that to look at information... Um, and then you can um, start cutting down on, on sort of almost everything you print. Um, just think twice, really, before you print stuff out. Um, it's, it's a bit of a tough habit to break, but it, it, it does work, and, and things like a Kindle and an iPad mean that it's easier to do than it would have been sort of a couple of years ago. Um, I think you I mean you just struck on something there. I mean, I think a lot of people have desired to be paperless for a long time, and this dream of a paperless office has been, I don't know, since I started work 20 years ago, it's been always said there. But you know, do you think we're, we're actually genuinely getting close where we can come you know, to the point where we can really have a paperless office? I think, I think the technology is getting there. I think we've got the advantage that we're not in a big corporate environment. I think if you were working in a big company and they suddenly said, from the 1st of April, we're going paperless, it would be a real struggle because it's not something you've decided to do. And I think similarly, if you were in a big corporation and you decided to go paperless it's almost impossible to do because there'll be other people in the company who want to use paper. Um, but as sort of indie developers or people who work in small teams, I think it's much easier to make the decision uh, that you're going to cut down or, or completely eliminate paper. And 
it might be a bit painful, but you can find ways of doing it. Um, and I think the technology, things like the iPad, things like the Kindle, things like Evernote, have progressed over the last few years to the point where actually there are alternative ways of doing it, and they're not ugly and they're not clunky. And, and I remember 15 years ago working for a company and they decided that they were going to go paperless. And it was a huge disaster because the repository software wasn't there, uh, the OCR scanning wasn't up to scratch, and it just became a real chore for everybody. And as soon as it becomes a chore, you'll stop doing it. Um, and if you can make it easy for yourself, and, and yes, there's some effort involved, but it's not a chore. And if you can make it easy, you'll stick with it. Um, and that's really the, the key to it. You need to start and you need to plug away at it and you need to have in the back of mind why you're doing it and the fact it was your decision to do it and rely on the technology and find the technology that will work for you. Now, I've talked a lot about Evernote. Um, it may be that people don't like Evernote or they've got a, another application that they prefer. There are loads of them out there, you know, things like Yojimbo, um, Circus Ponies Notebook, uh, Voodoo Pad, um, Devon Think, all sorts of things you can use as, as your repository. Um, pick one and keep using it. Don't use it for a week and think, oh, actually, I don't really like this. I'm now going to use something else. Do a bit of research first. Work out what you want this system to do for you and try and work out whether the software that you're trying will do it. And then once you've got it, stick with it and keep using it. Even if you then discover something that it may not do perfectly, stick with it and see if you can find a way around it. Because if you keep changing the applications that you're storing your data in, it just won't work. You need some commitment to do this. You need some time to build up your repository and to get used to using it and to just having everything stored in a central place that you're used to then searching and going to for your information. Um, if you fragmented across too many applications, is really no better than having loads of piles of paper because you don't actually know where to go to look for the information you need. You need to keep it all in one place. Um, now, having said that, um, at the moment, I'm kind of using OmniFocus as well as Evernote if I want to take a very quick note or a, a reminder to do something, and then I can review that after I've captured the information and say, okay, do I want to put this into Evernote because I want to keep it, or is this something that I really need to do now or is something that's definitely sort of a to do that needs actioning. Um, and I'm trying to get the, the two of them to sort of work together and get myself organized enough to use both together. Um, still not 100% sold on it, and, and I'm still using Evernote more than I'd like for quick notes and small notes and to-dos, but we'll see how that progresses over, over the next few weeks and months. Um, Simon, I have a serious question when you're ready. Go on, John. So, all right, you, you, the whole the whole idea behind this is you want to have access to all your stuff and and a lot of a lot of things that are important for running your business, things like bank statements or whatnot. Um, are, I don't know how it is for for you, but here in the United States, you can you can opt to have paperless billing. It's pretty easy and yep. pretty popular. But not every bank. It's not like banks will give you records, you know, two or three backs, uh, three years back. A lot of them, at least mine, uh, says you can basically you can have online the last ninety days of all your transaction statements, so that if you then want to keep a record of it, they're, you're they're basically just shifting the cost of printing it to you. Yep. If you decide to do that, do you ever do things like you know make a PDF out of that and then put that in an Evernote repository somewhere? And if you do, are you aware of of any? Uh, Kind of legal implications. In other words, how, how do you show? How do you say yes? This really is an accurate, you know, bank statement. You know, not not that you couldn't forge paper, but it's it's a little bit trickier. Um, I do do that, and actually, my bank, um, as well as having sort of an online list of the last, I think it's about four weeks transactions. They they do. Um, 
the the statements, the online statements they do are actually already done as PDFs. So you just download a PDF file, and then I will put them into something like Evernote um, and keep a history of them. Um, regarding the the sort of the legal side of it and trying to prove that you haven't forged it, I'm not sure really you can ever do that. And there was a whole thing until very recently um, in the UK with our, our tax, um, I don't know how you describe them politely, HMRC, who, who basically manage the tax. They're, they're your sort of IRS, the equivalent to your IRS. Um, they were a little bit sort of funny and they didn't really give clear guidelines about what you could keep and, and store electronically and what you still had to have as paper. Um, as far as I can tell, and I'm kind of hoping, but it would be quite an interesting challenge to them, I'm now just saying I will take everything paperless. So if I get a, uh, a ticket to go into a car park or uh, a train ticket that I've bought, um, I will then scan that in and I will just store the electronic version of it and I will, I will get rid of the original. Um, and we'll see what happens. I mean, as far as I know from other people I've spoken to, actually, it's not a problem. And they will generally work on the basis that you're not going to start forging things and, and you know, pretending that a car parking cost you £5,000 instead of £1.50. Um, and I think it's just the sort of thing that's really going to slowly evolve. And I guess that as more people do it, then the the um, the sort of the, the regulatory bodies almost are going to have to accept it more and more. Um but things like bank statements, yes, you know, download it yourself. And in a way, it's probably better to have an electronic copy because if you're using something like Evernote um, or any other system where you've got backups, you've got copies of it. Now, if in the old days, going back a year or two and everything was on paper, if my office had a fire in it, everything would be wiped out. All my records would be wiped out which puts me in a much, much worse and a much more vulnerable position than actually having electronic versions of everything. So yes, that- but, but if you were in your office and it turned into a funeral pyre, you wouldn't be worrying about it. So, in fact, you put yourself in, in a worse position because these records of all your misdeeds will, will live on everywhere and, and while you may still be around. Well, John, just because you uh, get sued left, right, and centre by people for your misdeeds, you know, the rest of us uh, run a tight ship. But um, <laughs> but uh, the thing is, you know, you've got them backups of it. I, I've always had a concern, um, I still do to a degree with, with old stuff, that I have all these papers at home, uh, bank statements, I have letters, I have stuff relating to, you know, house sales and, and uh, birth certificates and everything else, all these original bits of paper. And if I had a fire you lose all of that. And until I actually get everything scanned in, and I'm, I'm nowhere near getting everything I want to have scanned in, scanned in, until I reach that point, I'm still very vulnerable. But once I've got it all electronically, um, whether or not people will say, yes, you know, we'll accept the fact that you've got a scanned in birth certificate, because a lot of companies won't, um, it at least means that I've got something there and I can then refer back to it and I can look it up and I can, you know, I know effectively what's missing. So... You know, you have to decide what you need to keep as a paper copy. Um, and if uh, you decide that you need to keep your bank statements as, as original paper statements from your bank, you know, that's up to you. But the fact that the banks are now pushing to do paperless statements kind of implies that if you're keeping copies of it, it doesn't matter. And I'm sure if, if you really needed to investigate it, um, you could go to a bank and say, I actually need my statement from two years ago, and I bet you they could dig it out for you. Um, they're not destroying the record. It's just that they don't want to have to keep being able to produce this stuff on demand for, for customers. Um, so I don't see any real downsides to, to doing any of this and, and for sort of completely going paperless beyond the fact that we still have this odd thing uh, where you have to occasionally you know, produce proof of your address um, for um, usually for things like getting credit somewhere. 
Um, and most people won't accept an electronic document or a scan document or a PDF because it's perceived to be easily forged. So you still need to have some, unfortunately, some physical papers around um, and you still need to be getting physical statements from, from people because I don't know what's going to happen in a year or two when the telecoms companies are all doing electronic statements and the utilities companies are all doing it and you know everybody's going online because it's easier and cheaper for them. But you've still got this section of, of uh, industry who still want paper-based proof of who you are and use things like a bank statement or a, a utility bill um, as that proof. And it's going to be interesting to see how, how that evolves and what happens with all of that. Do you trust Evernote servers with your life? That was kind of a question that comes up for somebody reminding what happened with uh, Microsoft and Danger. Um, no, I don't. But... Um, you know, you need to keep backups of stuff. Um, if you've got it on Evernote, I would suggest, for example, that you have, um, and I haven't actually checked whether this happens or not, I'm assuming that if you've got the Mac application um, or you've got the iPad application and you are a premium user, for example, and you've said to it, download everything, you've actually got copies of everything on your device. I mean, I know, for example, I can access Evernote on my laptop when I don't have an internet connection. So all the documents are somewhere on my computer. Now, I haven't dug through to see how accessible and, and, and easily I can get to them, but I've got a copy of them. Um, but this is the key thing. Whatever system you choose, whether it's sort of Yojimbo or, or Evernote or VoodooPad or whatever, keep backups. Um, and you really want them off-site, and you want a, a couple of copies, I would say, off-site if you can. Um, and make sure that you can get that data back and that you can access it. So if something does go wrong, um, either with their servers or with your machine, you can still get to this information. Backups, particularly when you've gone paperless, are crucial. I mean, yes, in the old days, you didn't have it at all because if there was a fire, it was gone and that was that. Um, and you could take the attitude of, well, if my computer crashes and, and the hard disk dies, then it's all gone. But you don't want that. You, you want to avoid that. And the proactive way of doing that is to make sure you've got good backups. Um, so pick a couple of solutions or pick a, a particular online backup system and use uh, repository software that is cloud-based like Evernote is, and then you know that you've got it in a, in a couple of places. And then if it's synchronized, say, with an iPad or your iPhone or with another Mac, um, you've then got it across several devices as well. Um, and the more... Yeah, every Go on. Everybody was getting all pissed off at Path this past week because they were providing the useful service of backing up people's address. But... Yeah, but Path didn't ask if they could back it up, did they? If well, I... because they... They knew that if they did, just like saying, you know, I want to go paperless, everybody says they will, but they never get around to doing it. Path but, was just basically, you know, but, recognizing people's laziness. Yeah, but Path didn't need to do what they were doing. Um, there was a, a good blog post by um, Matt Gamble about using hashes, um, and they could have collected the, the information that way and stored it, and therefore they're not invading your privacy and they're not storing your personal information. If I put something into Evernote, and I know that Evernote is storing it on their servers, it's entirely my choice what information they have. And in the same way that using an online accounting package like Xero, I know that in theory, they can access my financial data for my business. But that's all my choice. If I choose to do that, fine. Uh, but I also remember um, Graham Lee saying at uh, uh, one of the NS conferences, actually, the only way to keep your data secure is to take your, your computer, encase it in a laptop and, and send it to the bottom of the sea. Because otherwise, really, you know, people can get to your data. And I think you've got to be pragmatic about it. And there is a difference between me saying, I'll take my bank statements and I'll store them in something like Evernote. And I accept the fact that this stuff's going to their servers or I'll store it in Dropbox and it's going to their servers. And having an application like Path where... 
they're not actually telling you what they're doing and they're just taking your data without your permission or, or your knowledge and saying, we've now got an entire copy of your address book. So if we chose to, we could now go and spam every contact you've got and we could point the finger at you and effectively, you know, badmouth you and badmouth your reputation. And we've got, you know, all sorts of, of, of private data. There's an awful lot of people who, who will have very private and personal data in their, in their address book application. And they may not want that um, up on Path servers. They may not want Path's employees being able to access it. So there's a big difference between me choosing to store stuff effectively in the cloud or in an online backup and having an application doing effectively what they were doing and stealing it without my permission. I know. I was being sarcastic. That's all right, John. We know that sarcasm doesn't work too well for Americans, and you, you let me have a you let me have a mini rant, so we'll we'll let you off. Um, were you stung by the the path stuff, or have you not been using it? Me personally, well, I never. I you know, I didn't. Uh, I used it a little bit. I, I I'm of this idea. It's like you know, I knew that they could have done all those things. Mostly, I just think that they were dumb. You know, that they yeah. didn't understand. No, I, I think they were. Could have. And, um, and, I, and actually, I think in the case of Facebook, they're very methodical about that stuff. In the, in the case of Path, I think that they were just a, a small company. I, I actually give them a little bit more benefit of the doubt. Yeah, it's quite interesting, the Path thing, because I asked them last week to delete my account and all my data, um, mainly because I wasn't actually using it anymore. And this was sort of kind of the catalyst to follow up and start sort of cleaning up after myself. Um, and then I was having lunch with somebody today and they did an update through Path and, and sort of included me in it. And I said to them, have you still therefore got all my details in, in Path? And they said, yeah, it's all here in the application. So I don't actually know. I've got to check this out, whether my data's still on the servers or whether he's just got a cached local copy of everything on his iPhone. So it'd be quite interesting to find out about that. Well, I mean, this is one of the, the points that people are talking about. It, you know, forget what Path did or didn't do for now. The fact that any application can access the address book on your device and do what it likes with it without you having to give it permission is the problem yep. there. Um, and so the whole, one of the, the issues is for, for Apple, obviously they're the only ones who can solve this, it's a case of, well, how do we get to this place where they can choose to protect certain data uh, in a way that the user has to give permission for it to be used without us ending up with the Windows Vista scenario of every two seconds you get a, uh, you know, a modal box saying, can we use your, can we use your, can we use your... Now, I like the way that um, things work with, like, call location, or just the first time the app needs it, it will ask, do we have permission to use your call location from now on? That sort of works. But, you know, what should be protected? Because at the moment, address data isn't. Um, there was a, a listening to something on that the other day. Actually, address data isn't even your data. It's other people's data. It's, you know, not even yours. And, uh, of course, the calendars aren't protected. Um, so, you know, what level, you know, where, where should Apple draw the line of what is protected and not protected on, you know, your iOS device? I, I would say that anything that can be accessed through their APIs that's outside of your application, because it's the whole thing about sandboxing. Your application is meant to be protected from other things as well as having other things protected from you. Um, anything where you can read in data from, from something else should need your permission. Um, you know, if you're importing a document, let's say you, you've, you've received an email attachment in mail on your iPad, you can then choose to send it to an application, which is fine because that's up to you. And similarly, you know, you can export from your application to other applications that will accept that file type, and you're in control of that. Um, and as you say, with the core location stuff, you're asked for permission before an application is allowed to know anything about your location. And I think it should be the same for address book, and I think it should be the same for the calendars, that any information that's outside of your, um, um, your own application that you're writing, the user should be asked for their permission. 
What do you think, John? I agree. I, I th- but I, I still think that, as one of the commenters said, it's like, you know, people just didn't think about this at all. I'm glad that, that, it, that it got brought to the, the fore. But it, either these companies are going to, to, to go to the trouble of actually understanding security and doing it, which I, I don't think they all will, or people are just going to have to be just start to think a little bit more carefully about what they share with it and what they, they say. I think something I just want to pick up when you said there, John, is we, we're using this terminology, aren't we, um, you, these companies. Uh, the reality is these days, you know, a vast majority of the stuff that we are using uh, on these devices, it, these companies is a Simon, a Scotty, a John, sat at home or in a small office, you know, doing stuff, and you're totally dependent on... Um, you know how much that person has learned so far or what their understanding of security is this isn't like uh, I know Path are a bit bigger but even so you know I, I suspect that the iPhone app and whatever Path is you know we're not talking about a huge company that's making corporate decisions this was a developer who maybe didn't understand the consequences of what they did as opposed to someone you know a corporate not making sure they analyze things properly and you know it's our individual responsibilities to to take this on board um, and that sort of word company sort of sort of hides the fact that actually we're now asking uh, a lot of individuals to have this awareness and you know show what what sort of awareness should we expect maybe that's a show we should do actually is you know what should an indie developer know as minimum you know what areas should you go and research as minimum before you even dare put a, an application on the device I, th- I think that's um, um, that's all all correct um, it was quite interesting when the sort of people were discussing this on Twitter the other day, there were obviously two sides to it. There was the side that Apple should be protecting your data. Um, an application should have to ask your permission before they can access things like the address book information. And then the flip side was that, okay, so developers have got the ability to access it, and really it's therefore the developer's responsibility to make sure they don't abuse it. Now, that's exactly what Path did, um, intentionally or unintentionally, and I think with Path it was unintentional, but they abused the the privilege of being able to access somebody's contact information. As, as um, Matt's blog post said, actually, they only really needed to get hold of your contact information once, see who you knew that was already in their system, match you up, and then they didn't need to store it. There was really no point in them permanently storing your, your contacts. Um, and somebody said, well, you can't expect developers to sort of behave like that because it almost comes down to sort of manners and politeness. Um, um, you know, people just don't behave responsibly in a way like that. And I think as a community particularly, developers need to be, and I think you need to think about what you're doing and you need to think about what your application does and the implications it has, not just for you as a company and sort of the PR aspects and, and, and whether you'll go through a PR nightmare like Path did, but also whether you're looking after your users. Um, and I think that is a big responsibility. We are all creating applications for people to use. We're all trying to enhance people's lives. And while there are things you can do that you may just look at and think, oh, you know, that'd be great. We can upload all their contact information. We can automatically map them. You need to think about the consequences and the morals of what you're doing. And, and um, um, you know, um, um, whatever was Spider-Man, there was this whole thing about with great power comes great responsibility. We have got great power. We, we can access stuff on people's devices that they may not even be aware of. And I would bet most people who use Path don't have an idea that an application can access their address book. Um, and so developers really do need to think about what they're doing and take responsibility for it and, and think about the consequences, regardless of whether or not Apple now decides to implement something that's going to block access to this information until you've got permission. 
Well, okay, that was a bit of a, a sidetrack, but a, a useful one onto Path, and I think we will put a couple of shows together on that at some point. Um, you know, developer responsibility. Uh, had we had had we disturb you sort of in mid-flow, or you were you wrapping up? No, I, it's I been so long ago now since you've been paperless that we can't remember where we were. I, I was going to to wrap up. I was just going to go through five sort of tips I've got for it, which are a sort of recap, um, which I'll do quickly. Is this, is this in order of importance, up or down? No, this is you're... this is just five. Okay, takeaway things. Let me give you your cues then. Number one, backups. Um, make sure you've got backups of your data. Really easy to do these days. All sorts of online backup systems, offsite backup systems, uh, RAID systems. Just make sure you've got lots of copies of your data. Number two, um, create a routine of scanning um, and then shredding paper. So when you get the post in each day, spend five minutes scanning in the stuff you need and shredding it um, or recycling stuff that's not particularly private uh, but don't let the paperwork build up number three um, find and stick with an application or a combination of applications that are going to work for you um, you need somewhere that you can use or an application you can use as a central repository whether or not you've got two of those or whether you have sort of helper applications you need to find something stick with it invest in it number four uh, get rid of post-it notes notepads, um, scraps of paper, anything that you're going to write um, notes on. Either have one notebook uh, or start using an iPad or ideally both, uh, but just consciously stop scribbling things on bits of paper. Number five. Uh, take it all slowly. You're not going to suddenly go paperless overnight. You're not suddenly going to take that huge mound of papers you've got sitting beside your desk and scan it all in and process it and file it away and, and find it useful. Start with the stuff that's happening on a daily basis and then slowly work through the back history of, of all the papers you've got. That, was, that, no, that was it. There was no number six. No, we're only going to number five. Beasts. <laughs> <laughs> so, so give it a go. Um, you know, it, it's cleared my desk. Um, it is making my life more organised. I know, for example, I've got to renew my, my car insurance in a couple of days. Um, and, you know, I dare to say that a couple of weeks ago, that bit of paper would have been stuck in a pile somewhere. I would have waited to get the reminder from the insurance company and gone into a mad panic to get the thing renewed before it expired. Um, give Not it a go. Do an accident and then have no cover. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't let all the secrets out. Um, but, but give it a go. It, it's making a difference for me. It may or may not make a, a greater or a lesser difference for, for other people, but it's certainly something I'm finding useful. Uh, and for the, the cost of investing in a scanner, uh, it's, you know, it, it's adding value to it. I've now got a clearer desk. I know more about what I've got to do outside of sort of the development work I do day to day. And it's just made me feel much more in control of what I'm doing. And I know where to go and look for information. You see, I find all this very interesting because I, you know, someone does my paperwork for me now, most of it, because I was so bad at it. I mean, all I do now is spread it over my desk and then let someone pick it up and put it somewhere tidy. Um, and yet, you know, sometimes it's, it'd be good to see that paperwork, or have access to that paperwork. And so sort of a, uh, I'd be interested to know if anybody knows of sort of what works as a team solution. Would Evernote work as a team solution, sharing documents? I don't know how Evernote sharing works, if it even does work. Uh, that sort of way that you know you could have a team have access to documents and you could just get one person use the scanner, the special person, and, uh, and do that. So this is um, an interesting uh, subject that hopefully uh, I'm going to go and look a bit more into anyway because you've seen my desk. And it's, oh, yes. It's much worse than mine now. It is. But yeah. I'm sure that photo you sent me your desk, you just pushed everything <laughs> under, under it at that point. <laughs> John, do you have anything to wrap up on that or can I move on? No, I think it's time to move on. 
Okay. Right. Well, um, obviously, we'll produce show notes with all those links in um, for today. If you'd like a paper copy of the show notes, then uh, please write to Simon at um, Simon Wolf. Raw, uh, village in the middle of nowhere, Somerset, England, and it will get to him. And uh, he will print a copy off because he's now got you know lots of no, not not going through his printer, and it'll be because oh, he's got access and, toner um, that he's been buying in bulk for the last ten years. Yeah. <laughs> he will he will tie it to a pigeon and uh, send it to you, uh, Simon. Yes. Are you still happy to do your new segment um, in the future now? We've abused you so much. Tell yes, us about the yes, new segment I'll, I'll that we're we going to do. Segment. Why are we going to think do a new, uh, a new segment? Um, we're doing a new segment for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that um, you used to do – actually, you didn't do it, which is probably why it was good. There used to be a bit of your network that did a podcast called uh, the Mac SB Year One, which covered – I think it was four developers over the course of a year – uh, running their business, getting applications to market, and, and um, how their businesses were evolving. And it was really interesting, and it was great fun, and, and you'd learn a lot from it. Um, I'm in a position where I have just started creating um, an application that I'm going to sell as Otter Software. So rather than it being a client project, it's actually my own project for my company that I'm going to sell. Um, it's a product that's going to be called Avtag. And we thought it'd be quite interesting for me to give regular or semi-regular updates of what is happening during the development process, both in terms of actual development and anything interesting that that, that throws up, but also in terms of things like the marketing and design issues and um, really anything else that goes into getting an application to market and then seeing actually how it goes, whether it just disappears immediately and amongst everything else in the in the app store um, or whether I can actually you know get some visibility for it and, and get some interest in it um, now at this point I'm not going to actually explicitly say what Avtag does um, that will probably come along in a few weeks just because I want to get a, a little bit more work done on it first I need to get a, a few more designs in um, and it just needs. A, I need to also think. It's, it's an odd thing to say, but I need to think more about the marketing side of it. It's an application that generally, if I just say to somebody very briefly what it is, they sort of scratch their heads a bit. If you then explain it in a bit more detail, they sort of you can almost see the light bulb come on as, as they realise how they could actually use it. Um, so I need to almost think about the whole marketing spiel a bit first. Um, but I'm going to start doing some some updates for you on that. Um, if people want to, there's a Twitter account, which is Avtag App, A-V-T-A-G-A-P-P, um, which I'll start to update more often. Um, there's a Facebook page, but it, that's going to pretty much duplicate at the moment what's going on the, on the Twitter feed. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully people find it interesting and, and just seeing and experiencing what somebody who does contract work and relies on contract income um, does and, and has to do to find the time firstly to write their own application and finance the writing of it um, and then watch it evolve um, and see where I make horrible mistakes trying to market it and publicize it and, and you guys can then sort of all laugh at that and say actually you know we now know next time when we when we're in a similar position we'll do it like this instead um, so hopefully people find it interesting and it's, it's going to kind of be like a, a, a verbal diary of an application. So uh, you promised to give us warts and all. You're not going to clean it up or anything for no, us. No, I won't. I won't clean it up. All the horrible mistakes will um, um, be public, which is probably not a good idea. But it's really the only way people will learn from it. I, I'm really interested in this. I mean, we're going to call it the Avtag Diaries, um, and uh, you know, this this journey from idea through to uh, final product, the ups and downs, uh, recording it over at the next um, you know twelve months or so. Uh, just in this, we're not quite sure how regular someone put it out. I'm encouraging him to be as 
regular as possible. And um, like my doctor. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, uh, yeah, so uh, hopefully you're going to find that interesting and we're going to find that interesting and we can all enjoy laughing at the many mistakes Simon is going to make over the next 12 months. But then we will also wallow with him in the glory of the product that comes at the end. <laughs> don't don't really laugh at the glory bit, John. Goodness <laughs> sake. We would all feel like we own a tiny part of Avtag when it gets released. Right, so we're going to wrap that up um, this week. First of all, I think we do have to give a big shout out, don't we? That money well too shipped. Yay! Yes, yay! We have to give a big congratulations to the uh, the No Thirst Software team, uh, those at the left anyway, that survived the process. <laughs> Michael Fay, Mr. Rooney, and. Uh, um, Kevin Hockter, well done guys, you've shipped money well too. You have absolutely robbed us of all the jokes we could possibly make on this show. And uh, yeah, so but we, we can are, transfer them now to the fact that Tag Hag 2.0 is woefully behind schedule. Tag, <laughs> Tag Hag Diaries, here we go. Um, the only thing I can really say to you boys is where's Money Well 3? <laughs> Come on, get on with it. It's in here. Right, uh, Simon, thank you very much for uh, sharing your, your paperless journey with us today. Um, I know people will say that's not tech, but I think it is indies. You know, we really trying to focus our developer life on an indie lifestyle. And I know we have a lot of people from corporates and uh, do that, but there's more to it than writing code. And as we were discussing earlier on, in the early days of some of the podcasts I was doing, we were really focusing on just technical stuff. But the reality is in those days, there was no technical content out there, whereas these days there's so many blog posts and blogs and books and, and stuff that audio is really not necessarily the best way to get that really um, uh, in-depth API sort of material. So a lot of the technical stuff we're going to do now is more an introduction to frameworks or, or this technology or that technology in order that you know people can then go off and find it because we don't need audio to do that anymore. The days of what Late Night Coco was trying to achieve back in 2007, they're gone. I think we can all agree you know, we don't need that anymore. Um, and we really want to focus our developer live in on, on, on the whole uh, holistic indie experience of, of, of business and uh, uh, working practice and technical stuff and releasing and marketing and everything. So um, uh, personally, I think that's really good that you have uh, introduced the paperless office to the indie. I am going to do regular random inspections of your desk. I'm just <laughs> going to turn up at your office. And if there is a single piece of paper on it, you get flogged. There we are. But um, while you're still alive, tell us uh, tell us where people can go and find um, more information about you and then print it out. Okay. I am Simon Wolf. Uh, my company website is ottersoftware.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as S-G-A-W. Uh, and as I said, if you want to follow uh, the Twitter stream for Avtag, that is Avtag App. John, do the business. <laughs> with regularity uh, well my name is John Fox and you can find out all about my product memory miner at memoryminer.com you can read my blog about it at memoryminer.com slash blog and on Twitter you can find me as Jembe D-J-E-M-B-E like the West African drum and don't forget to send them your cease and desists <laughs> yeah Yes, paperless, of course, PDFs. There we go. And uh, I'm Scotty. You can follow me at my um, ramblings on Twitter at MacDevNet. If you only want the official stuff, follow iDeveloperTV. Um, and, of course, you can go to the iDeveloper.tv website and check out our video training and nsconference.com to check out. I've got to get less websites, haven't I? That's ridiculous. We'll uh, 
consolidate that down to maybe a holding page. There we are. Well, thank you very much, chat room, for being on board with us um, and uh, some of the questions we had in there. Oh, Acamgen says, uh, don't forget to include stamps when you send the um, the request to uh, uh, Simon for the paper copy of the, the show notes. Well, that's it. Oh, wait a minute. I've got to do the important stuff. I have to cue up the music because the show wouldn't be complete without the music. I have to get ready on the dials and I'm going to say, until next time, you all take care. Thank <laughs> you.